The strange loop phenomenon occurs whenever, by moving upwards or downwards through the levels of some hierarchical system, we unexpectedly find ourselves right back where we started. Sometimes I use the term tangled hierarchy to describe a system in which a strange loop occurs. As we go on, the theme of strange loops will recur again and again. Sometimes it will be hidden, other times it will be out in the open. Sometimes it will be right side up, other times it will be upside down or backwards. Quarendo invenientes is my advice to the reader. Neil, welcome to the show. Yeah, this was a book that really made me think. <laughs> <laughs> Could not resist that. <laughs> no, this okay. This was by far, I think, the most complex, longest book that we have done. Yeah, definitely the, the longest. So far. Yeah, definitely the most complex, and probably the one where, at least personally, I've walked away with like feeling like I probably only got a very tiny percentage of it. Yeah. But even that was like profound. Oh, yeah. The book we're talking about, of course, is Godel Escher Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid by Douglas Hofstadter. So if you haven't seen this book or come across it, it's about 750 pages long, very large page size, yep. filled with a lot of dense mathematics, logic. And the core theme is... Well, I mean, I guess you could say a lot of things. The core theme is what, curious what you're going to say. For yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is this idea of strange loops, but particularly how it relates to intelligence and minds and yep. artificial intelligence. Yeah. And Douglas Hofstadter, I believe, is one of the probably the world's leading researchers in artificial intelligence. Yeah, at and least he wrote, he very this, early on. Yeah. And he yeah. wrote this book when he was about 30, 30, I think. I believe. Yeah. yeah. And it was written in the 70s. I Came out say, in right? mid 70s. Mid 70s. Like yeah. yeah. So yeah. it was about 40 years ago. <laughs> Uh, which is, and you know, we'll dive into some of these concepts and stuff, but just pretty incredible that this book, you know, he was thinking about a lot of these issues 40 years ago when obviously computers were not even in, there were many, many orders of magnitude less powerful than they are today. And back then, none of these conversations were happening in the public sphere right. the way they're you happening today. Elon, you didn't have Elon Musk outside talking about, you know, super intelligence and right. Nick Bostrom writing a great book about that. And it wasn't a public sphere conversation. Yeah, he's writing this about an equal distance in time from when the internet became consumer available as between now and when the internet became consumer available. Yeah, Think about it, it was right? About 20 years this ago. This is about 20 years ago. And he was writing this 20 years before that. So all the advancements that have happened in the last 20 years, right? Just think about that. I mean, even the last 10, 15, and he's writing this in 77, right? So <laughs> it's pretty wild. And I think what was kind of crazy to me was how many of these ideas or these challenges are still relevant, where we've obviously gotten faster computers and, you know, more advanced processors and everything. But the core fundamental issue of what does it mean to think or to be intelligent is still challenging us. It's still challenging. And it, the other thing that I really found interesting about this book is how many other things it connected to. Like he uses DNA and molecular biology in a large chunk of the book to demonstrate a few different ideas. And then also he brings in a lot from philosophy, particularly Zen philosophy, uh, which I found to be very interesting. And if you haven't heard our Way of Zen episode, go back. You don't have to go back right now, but go back <laughs> later and listen to it. Add it to your podcast queue. Exactly. And yeah, it was very interesting how like he tied a lot of these concepts into what could have been a very dry book if yeah. he had written it, you know, just about the mathematical proofs, which there are parag uh, not paragraphs, there's whole chapters, which are basically mathematical proofs. Well, yeah. And I feel like that's actually worth touching on briefly Absolutely. in that 
the book is intimidating, right? I mean, this is a it's a challenge. It's a really it's, challenging yeah, book. Yeah. It's not, you know, easy to get through and absorb all of it. Obviously, you can flip all the pages, but I feel like one of the challenges with it is just that some of the math gets so dense and in the weeds where he, I mean, he basically reconstructs formal logic and walks you through, you know, how to do it and how it makes sense. Did you follow some of the exercises? Like the MU system or like... I had done a number of them before. Oh, okay, cool. So for me, it was totally new. Yeah. So especially near the beginning when they were a lot simpler. (laughs) Yeah. Because they they slowly build, right? And they get way more complex. But in the beginning, especially, he's like, reader, please try this exercise and come back. So I tried like the MU system, uh, which we'll get into what that exactly is. But yeah, I sat and did like the exercises and I I was like, okay, you can build your understanding if you start from that level. And then, yeah, there is a certain point though, where the math started going over, the logic actually started going over over my head, or maybe I could have followed it, but the proofs are just so long. Yeah. They get pretty crazy. (laughs) If you've never taken a class or two in formal logic before, then it's it's really like kind of intimidating. (laughs) Yeah. The, The good news is, and kind of what I was getting at is that you can actually get a lot out of the book. Yes. Without understanding the deep mathematical stuff. You could take his word for it. Yeah, you can just take his word for it and say, okay, cool. That's, you know, that I accept. Yeah, I accept your Mathematica. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Without having to go through all the proofs yourself. And 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 the book still makes sense. Yeah. And that's probably shortens the book by probably quite a hundred, a couple hundred pages. (laughs) I I think I was halfway or two thirds of the way through the super dense math chapters when I just kind of realized that, okay, I don't need to go through every single step of this. (laughs) I could just kind of like skim ahead and, you know, get the gist of the math parts and then go back to the conceptual parts yeah. and you still understand most right. of what's going on. Right. And he does explain it conceptually as well. And then there's like the dialogue sections. So the way he constructs the book is like usually a dialogue section where he has Achilles and the tortoise and then potentially some other side characters as well conversing, which in a manner which demonstrates the concept that he's about to talk about in a narrative or in a proof. Uh, it's a pretty clever way of doing it. It's an amazing way for the book to be structured <laughs> yeah. because he takes a problem like recursion, right? Yeah. So if anyone's familiar with the concept of recursion, and then he explains it via a conversation between Achilles and the tortoise. So maybe they right. bring in another friend or he's talking about, you know, multi-level strange loops, which we'll get into. Yeah. And then you've got Achilles and the tortoise in this basically like Lewis Carroll's story, diving through these different narratives that they're finding. And at the same time, you're weaving in elements of Escher paintings. Right. <laughs> and music by Bach. And then, you know, there's like other art. And so his ability to just tie all of these seemingly disparate, unrelated things together, but then show this underlying strange loopiness right. in all of them. Right. And how that's really a fundamental piece of art, music, technology, intelligence, yep. and eventually why that has to be such a big challenge for intelligence and AI. I mean, it's an amazing way for a book to be structured. I've yeah. never seen a book, anything like it. I actually was going to say shout out to his publisher because like, yeah. great, like, first of all, the length, like most publishers hate books that are like this long because yeah. it costs a lot to produce. Two, like the topic does not seem like it would be in the popular like imagination, right? It's not like a popcorn book by any means. <laughs> and they were, he was able to get it published. And it seems like in an almost unabridged kind of version where he was able to include all the things, like there's pictures of like Escher paintings in there, or, or there's, you know, music, like yeah, sheets scores. in there. I mean, yeah. His own hand drawings. His own hand drawings. <laughs> like they didn't take anything out, it seems like. Yeah. I'd be curious if this is like the edited, <laughs> like if there is like a longer, Maybe, like a thousand page version. Yeah. yeah. 
If he's like, no, I, these are the mini proofs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've heard that about uh, Atlas Shrugged. Okay, yeah. The, the original Atlas Shrugged is like 500 pages longer. <laughs> yeah. So they, they had to edit it down to 1,000 pages. So I, I wonder if if this was slightly abridged. Or maybe the original one that came out was abridged and they were later released an unabridged version. Uh, yeah. But I mean, it won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, it did. Right? Exactly. Which, <laughs> which is amazing, too. Yeah. Although the quotes on the back of the book, which I'm going to just read a couple right now, I'm doubtful if some of these like reviewers actually read the book or <laughs> they got any of it <laughs> okay oh here's one from the american mathematical monthly a brilliant creative and very personal synthesis without precedent or pure in modern literature could have just thrown that on any book <laughs> exactly from jeremy bernstein who i don't know exactly who that is but i have never seen anything quite like this book it has a youthful vitality and a wonderful brilliance and i think it may become something of a classic well there is one thing in there though which is this playful attitude throughout oh, the yeah. whole book yeah. is that it's so i mean it's pretty intense it's, and it's intellectually parts. and it's it's also really funny yeah. <laughs> like there are parts where you just laugh out loud yeah. especially in the dialogues yeah where the characters are a lot of the time talking about themselves without them being aware of it, right? right. Or like the different levels of loops, right? When exactly. The nested loops part. Yeah. Where like they're in a, what does he call it? Where they pop in and pop out, pop out. Yeah, yeah, that's, of different yeah. layers. They're essentially <laughs> so, watching themselves talk. Yeah, and then the, the level that's being watched is also watching another level. You know, there's like many nested loops basically going on at the same time. And if anybody listening can't tell, we're struggling a little bit to figure out exactly <laughs> yeah. how to introduce all of these concepts and, you know, synthesize in an effective way a 750 page book so that you guys walk away with the core ideas. But I, I think we'll like, start with the history or the basis of even how he introduced some of these concepts. We can start there. Maybe. Yeah, I feel like that, that's a great way because I feel like you start to get it by example where it starts to become a little bit clearer what he's talking about when you have a few examples to go off of. And he starts the book with math, music, and art, which is the Godel, Escher, and Bach, yep. yeah, the, the namesake. So the math version, for anybody who's you know relatively familiar with mathematics, is this Godel incompleteness theorem. Uh, you were an engineering major. You can yeah. explain that better than me. Well, my only background on that is from the book, actually. Oh, okay. So I hadn't Us heard too. of it before. <laughs> but well, actually, I had heard of it before when we were looking at Bertrand Russell for the In Praise of Oh, Elvis. yeah, because he wrote the principle. Because exactly. He was yeah. one of the co-authors of it. So but basically, it's a I think it's a system of number theory that is supposedly fully defined. Like they're claiming like it encompasses all of mathematics. Yeah, that, that was, was the goal of the Principia. Yes. Yeah. But I think the more interesting thing with Gödel's and it's called the incompleteness theorem is that any system which attempts to fully define all of mathematics or it could even be more micro than that, right? It's like any system that attempts to fully define everything but I don't know what scale that everything. As I understood it, it was specific to mathematics and it's Hofstadter who's pulling it out to broader generalizations. Got it. it. Okay. So in mathematics, any system which tries to, it says any attempt for number theory to define itself will fail. And he proved that for all of mathematics. So basically saying that like that is not possible. And it's interesting because I think now maybe nobody has really tried to create a full system of mathematics, but he gives in, in the history of this, he's talking about how that has sort of been this elusive goal for mathematicians throughout history. And he goes back to like Euler and like um, Newton. And it's like, it's been sort of this like elusive goal that mathematicians have wanted to create essentially a, whether it's a book or whatever, but a full system of mathematics. And yeah, he kind of showed that this holy grail is, it, it is unattainable. And there was a quote here that really clicked this idea for me. And it was a metaphor that he uses uranium as the metaphor. But he basically says, 
the fascinating thing is that any such system digs its own hole. And he's referring to any fully self-defined system. The system's own richness brings about its own downfall. The downfall occurs essentially because the system is powerful enough to have self-referential sentences. In physics, the notion exists of a critical mass of a fissionable substance, such as uranium. A solid lump of the substance will just sit there if its mass is less than critical. But beyond the critical mass, such a lump will undergo a chain reaction and blow up. It seems that with formal systems, there is an, an analogous critical point. Below that point, a system is, quote, harmless and does not even approach defining arithmetical truth formally. But beyond the critical point, the system suddenly attains the capacity for self-reference and thereby dooms itself to incompleteness. And I think there he's talking about these strange loops once again that seem to arise in mathematics anytime a system tries to define everything, including itself. Because obviously there's a loop there. Yeah. And the challenge is that it can't be assuming that it can prove itself, then there must be something beyond it, which is not contained in it, right. which is that proof. Right. But if that proof exists, then the system that it is proving the legitimacy of must not have been complete. Right. Exactly. And you can basically do that forever. Infinitely. And that, that is sort of like the strange loop in gold is yep. completeness is that you have to keep making the system bigger and bigger in order for it to continue proving itself, which is kind of like uh, so one of the dialogues in the book, the tortoise says it's or Achilles says it's his birthday. And the tortoise says, well, how do I know it's your birthday? And Achilles says, well, because I said it, it's my birthday. And he says, well, how do I know I can believe you when you say it's your birthday? And he says, well, you know, because uh, like I'm an honest person and, you know, you can trust me. He says, yeah, but I've trusted you before, but like, how can I trust you now? Right. And you can kind of do this forever, forever. right? You yep. can keep going and going. And he, yeah, exactly. And it doesn't matter how many examples you give. There's always like one level further. You can push it down and then it breaks it. And you start to see this everywhere yep. is that there always be these things where eventually we just sort of have to go off of faith or accept the incompleteness, yep. right? And most of science is technically like this too, right? Where at some level, it's kind of like the history of the universe, right? It's like we can get infinitesimally close to the Big Bang, right. but we, we still have no, no idea, idea. <laughs> what, what caused that. Did right. anything cause it? You can't even say for certain like yeah. what exactly was going on at that moment. Which is another one of the- What happened before that? Kind of paradoxes in the book is this, well, we can get halfway there and then we can get halfway right. again and yep. halfway again and halfway again. I remember calculus, again. that was like one of the coolest things that we learned that I was like, whoa, like where, and basically that's this idea where if I'm trying to get to Nat and he's 10 feet away from me, I can keep getting, oh, I got halfway closer. I got halfway closer. I got halfway closer. But technically, if you keep doing that, you'll never actually get there. And that's like one of the paradoxes that he brings up in this book. And yet, obviously, in real life, you, you just can obviously right get somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> actually, he demonstrates that with one of the dialogues yeah, as exactly. well. They're racing. <laughs> yeah. um, actually, this sort of infinite loop or strange loop idea reminds me of something that came up in Way of Zen, which was the idea of making decisions. So if you say, OK, you're going to make a decision. It's like, OK, how did you make that decision? Well, I decided. Well, how did you decide to decide? I decided to decide. Well, how did you decide to decide to decide, right? And you could just keep going down that loop forever and you'll never actually like make a decision, right? If you keep following it down. And that's sort of- Yet we make decisions every day. Yeah. So there's something that's happening. And it's part of the incompleteness that- like of all systems that Hofstadter is getting at, I think, yeah. which is that at the end of the day, this is a book about intelligence and about AI. And he's sort of showing that if we try to think of our own intelligence as a perfectly contained system that we can replicate on a computer, it's just not true, at least from Hofstadter's argument, yeah. right? There is going to be this element of, well, how did you decide to decide? How did you decide to decide to decide? Right. And any additional rules for that continue to you know swell the system. And so you eventually have to leave in a certain amount of incompleteness, 
right? There's a few great Escher paintings that he puts in here. And this is tying in another element of the book, which is, you know, art by MC right, Escher. Yep. And if nobody's looked at any Escher prints, oh, yeah. you, you have to go do you that. You have to. <laughs> uh, and it'll make a lot more sense. But the simplest strange loop that he shows from Escher is the never ending staircase, where it's basically a four sided building. And it's a staircase that looks like it's always going up. Yes. But he's manipulated the drawing in such a way that it eventually curves back on itself so and if you've seen inception they have it in there too the penrose stairs right where it looks like you're always going up but it's just inception, been inception is a really good thing to bring up here actually yeah inception is a perfect it's example. basically a lot of these concepts yeah it's, it's like nested loops it's the, yeah, yeah it's like a very escher-esque movie boxes. for lack of a better way of putting it a lot of strange loopiness <laughs> yeah and we'll actually put a pin in that and come back to it because there's another relevant thing there with inception but i wanted to finish this thought which was that uh one of the other things that escher does in some of his paintings is that because of the way they're designed with how they're kind of folding in on themselves he has to leave a blank spot in the painting mm. And Hofstadter has one of these towards the back of the book. I'll try to look up which one it is so that we can include it. But it's like a man in an art gallery. Oh, and yeah. the scent, and so the art gallery kind of folds in on itself. That one was And good. yeah, the, the hands drawing was, hands is yeah. a great one. Uh, but the art gallery kind of folds in on itself. But because of the way it's folding in, there yeah, has to be this hole in the middle of it, this like white circle. And basically, it's demonstrating that sometimes these like strange loops need a certain emptiness in order to exist. And that's the incomplete. And that's kind of like the incompleteness, right? So he's basically showing how all of these systems can exist and function while still being undefinable or incomplete, which is sort of a weird thing to get your mind around. But once you recognize it, you start seeing these strange loops everywhere. And we've touched on a lot of them. And especially this notion of going in and out of different layers, which is where Inception, I think, is a perfect example, where it's hard to... Well, okay, so we all kind of do this day to day in our conversations, right? We've been doing it in this com- in this conversation, <laughs> where we like step down into one layer of a conversation, yep. and we're like, we, "We'll come back to that one." Exactly. Yep. We, we find another tangent, and then we go a layer deeper, yep. and then we might go we down one more, out. and then we pop back out, yep. right? But then even even us recording this podcast is a layer deep, where you and I were having a conversation before this, right. and now we've like popped down into the podcast you know, recording, yep. and then at the end we'll pop back out, right? Yep. And Hofstadter is talking about how you do this in. uh, like formal systems too, right? Whether that's mathematics or AI, he talks about doing it in music too, like Canons and Fugues by Bach. I really like the tension part that he was talking about, how there's like almost mini areas of tension within pieces that get resolved but then you pop back out to like the higher level of tension in the overall piece. Right, right. right. And, yeah. It's kind of like a story too. It's kind of like a right? story, yeah. Stories have that as well. There'll be small bits of action that are part of the larger overarching action. Yep. And as each little piece gets resolved, you get closer to resolving, you know, the main climax yeah. or whatnot. And so basically his point with that is that it is in itself showing some of the incompleteness of the individual systems in that in order for a system to be defined, you have to pop out of it. Because for a system to have a strange loop, you have to be able to pop out of it essentially and the example he gives is you could imagine a story where author a is writing a story about some character author k and in you know author a's story author k is writing a story about author h but in author k's story author h is writing a story about author a right and they're all writing a story about each other about writing each other and that's obviously a paradox unless you can pop out of all of that to a a fourth one you know author z who is writing about it all these authors writing about each other yeah Yeah. then it's no longer paradox but i mean the funny thing with that obviously is that that author is also in the book being written about by hofstadterist that's another 
layer out. Then it's like, uh, who's writing about ops? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, that's, I mean, on some level, he's kind of getting at that in a less direct way in that in order for some of these strange loops to exist, there has to be a layer above it you can pop out to. And so in mathematics, that's sort of the point of the incompleteness theorem is yep. that a system can't be fully self-defining because there's always going to be some of the strange loopiness. You have to pop out right. in order to define it. Uh, in our conversations, we kind of have to pop out, right, once we finish each of these tangents. And then for like the Escher paintings, the situation within the painting obviously cannot exist. Yes. And you can see the paradox. But that's, but that's you're because observer. you're already popped yes, out. Yes, exactly. So if you were popped into the painting, well, you couldn't really even you do couldn't that. Yeah, really, yeah it you, couldn't really be reality. <laughs> Most well, but, I mean, yeah. <laughs> sort of. I mean, that's sort of what he talks about with the dialogues, mm. right? Where you're in these strange loopy situations that obviously are not like physically possible, but to the characters in them seem totally real. They are, yes. Because right. in that layer, those rules, it's kind of like if you're like um, writing a loop, like you can have different assumptions within that loop. You can have right. variables be defined as different things in the loop versus out of the loop. That's totally doable. So it's the same idea. Yeah. And then it all comes back to our own consciousness, which has its own strange loopiness yep. that we all kind of gloss over. I mean, the one big example he gives is death, right? Mm, yeah. Where we all recognize that it is impossible for us to imagine what non-existence will be like. Yeah. Because even if we are trying to imagine a third person point of view of the world, that is still us imagining ourselves right. viewing it, right? It's completely impossible for us to pop out of the system and, and see it. See, yeah. And yet those situations exist, obviously, right? There's plenty of time before you were born, there'll be plenty of time after, time after you're dead. Yeah, it's almost like this is the blip on the radar is when you actually exist. Yeah, and that's part of where he ties back in the Zen, too, right. which I thought was so cool. Yeah, which is it's very much related to that yeah, it's idea. Totally. Yeah, and it's weird, again, we talk about this every week, I find, I think, <laughs> but just how many of these ideas end up relating to each Popping other. Up. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, so now my tangent's not even a tangent. Thanks for that, Nat. <laughs> <laughs> Ruined it. But uh, So tangent number one has not happened in this episode yet. If you're keeping track at home. <laughs> uh, no, I was just going to say, though, that like this book, because maybe of all the different concepts that he ties together and especially, at, you know, all the things you just talked about with like in order to have the strange loop, you need to be able to step out of it. It just makes you think about one, the like incredible complexity of the world that we live in. Like when you really start looking at all the different layers and like even just the fact that we're doing this podcast, like if you yeah. start defining it in terms of loops and like levels and just like all our everyday interactions are very complicated. And then just even the more profound idea is probably the fact that like consciousness even exists makes you think of like, okay, well, what happens when you pop out of that, mm, right? Yeah. It's like, what is, yeah. Anyway, like how do you resolve that's the strange loopiness of our world, our reality world? Well, I think that's part of what he's suggesting in the book right. too. And I also right. want to throw in this preface, yeah. which is that with this book in particular, I think that everybody needs to take our interpretations and understandings with like a bit of a grain oh, of salt. Yeah. We could be totally <laughs> off. And you, actually like, for every book, you should do yeah, that. But, but especially <laughs> for this one, I feel like we're, we're most liable to be getting bits of it wrong. Yes. Uh, bits or large bits. bits or lar yeah, or chunks. <laughs> <laughs> My point about that was that I feel like that's a another piece he's getting at with the whole AI problem, mm, which yeah. is that if we're going to try to create an intelligence, then we have to be able to understand an intelligence, but we can't pop out of our own intelligence. Right. So how do we like figure out what to do with this system? And it's part of the challenge that I think he's trying to resolve yeah. throughout the book and how he's bringing in all these other examples of strange loops and the recursion and circular stuff and like how we handle these paradoxes. And I think that's his attempt to demonstrate the building blocks of what he views as like 
sort of the way the world works and the way intelligence works, at least as far as we operate, as humans operate. And then I would say that maybe the last couple chapters, two, three chapters are kind of, I viewed it as like his sort of hypothesis on what he thinks intelligence is and how maybe it could work in, in an AI format. So like he talks a lot about emergent behavior, like as systems get larger, there's things that arise, which you wouldn't know at the minute level. Yeah. That was pretty cool. And the stuff with ant colonies and termites. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. That was really fascinating. And you know what that made me actually think of? He didn't bring it up. This isn't from the book. And again, this is my own speculation. But just take a step back. The ant colony thing that Nat is talking about is how an ant colony, he kind of refers to as a collective intelligence, where the individual ant is like clearly not intelligent and is not like thinking about what it's doing. But the ant colony as a whole, and when taken as a unit, is doing something. And he gives the, I guess, uses that as an analogy for neurons emerging into brains. Yeah, he's brain. basically saying you could think about your brain as an ant colony. Ant colony with sorts. neurons that right. are, because op- he's, he, I mean, when you break it down, a neuron actually is not that complicated. It's literally a binary system. It's just, right. it can exactly. fire or it can not fire. Yep, exactly. And at the mechanical level, that's all your brain is doing. Right. And so, right. like, he, he talks about, like, there's nothing in that particular neuron that's, like, take an individual neuron and be like, yeah, this thing will result in consciousness. Like Mm. there's nothing there that's pointing to that. Right. But obviously something happens at the collective when you collect, you know, billions of neurons together and turn into, you know, when a human arises, it has intelligence or does something happen? I don't know. That's a big question. That's 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 the the other question. There's no answer to that. But uh, where I was going with it is like, what if you view each individual human as like you view an an individual ant Mm. and there's some collective, like if there was some third party alien observer from 10,000 light years away or something observing earth like would they think earth like or all humans are one system uh, the way we yeah. view neurons as one unit of the brain right would they view like each individual human not as like its own thing but just as like a piece of the whole collective entity yeah i mean when you step out far enough it's sort of hard to make it's an argument enough. about where to draw the line right. exactly because right? like a cell like a, what is this like a cell that's part of you yeah i mean they move around they have <laughs> nuclei they, they have their own stimuli that they react to versus not react to mm-hmm. and I don't know. So does each individual human, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> yeah. I care about some things, you care about some different things, but we can't step out big enough. Like, you know, you, know, you see where I'm going with that? Uh, yeah, it's yeah. hard well, to describe this, but like we're too nested to see like that high level of the overall humanity loop, I guess, if that can, makes sense. You can get glimpses of it though. And the, the example I was just thinking of is like herd behavior and crowd mentalities. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I think yeah. that's a perfect example. That's it. That is. Or markets. Of, markets yeah, are markets are another good one yeah. too. But I'm especially thinking of people kind of like losing their minds mm-hmm. in like a riot or something yeah. where they'll just do something really crazy and then afterwards they'll go like, whoa, right? Like who did that or yeah. what was going on? And it explains a lot of bad behavior in those situations mm-hmm. where people just get carried away by being part of this system, this, right. you know, whatever temporary tribe. And and they're that, not even thinking. Yeah, I, yeah I've thinking, heard that about acting. riots. I don't know enough about riots to like speak intelligently at all on what's actually happening there. But I've yeah. heard that as well, where people will say like they sometimes don't even like remember doing things that they do that even they're caught on video. And they're like, that's weird. That, yeah, like, that's clearly me. <laughs> but I don't like I didn't do that. Right. Right. Like, somebody else did that. <laughs> somebody else in the driver's seat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. No, it is. And I mean, it, and going back to what he's saying there, it's like, that's part of the weird thing with trying to figure out how do you program in intelligence? Because on the hardware level, right, it's really just a bunch of switches going right. off up it's there. It's binary, which I guess is the same as computers. Yeah, too. yeah, it's really just like a binary oh, system. Yeah, and he gives that distinction between machine code and like software. 
right? Where he's talking about like hardware. Oh, yeah, like, There's yeah, like yeah. many different layers as well, right? So right. Talking about like any programming language is communicating ultimately with machine code, which right. is just binary, right? And that he uses that to make the analogy to neurons, yeah. which are also just binary. And his argument, which I thought was really kind of fascinating that I hadn't heard before, is that so much of our own thinking is not based on like recollection and stored knowledge. It's something else going on based on synthesis of sort of our ability to randomly combine things on the fly, where he gives the example of if I tell you to imagine a car swerving around a mountain road, right? Oh, yeah. I, I expect that when you imagine that situation, you're imagining the mountain is bigger than the car. But have you ever like sat down and written out like, you know, by the way, mountains are bigger than cars. Did anybody ever tell you mountains are bigger no. than cars? No, but like that information <laughs> not is a formal in there. Rule, but yeah, it's it, not a formal rule, yeah. right? But you just sort of know it. Right. But that knowledge isn't stored anywhere directly. Right. There's no part of your brain you can point to where like that is. You don't have like here. a table of yeah, ice and sizes yeah, yep. where it's like, okay, uh, mountains bigger than cars, like people usually smaller than cars. Right. You just kind of know all this stuff right. based on these like old chunked images. Right. And uh, well, he gives the example of like the rat in the maze mm, yeah. where they were taking out chunks of the rat's brain and having it go through the maze. And it like didn't matter what parts they took out. He would just get a little bit worse, right. but still figure it out. Right. And it was such a weird finding because they expected that like, no, this would be the part where he stored the maze, but there wasn't. It was just a bunch of little heuristical things spread throughout his brain. Right. And so it's like how much of our own memory is doing that or how much of our own memory is doing it. It's like probably a lot. And then yeah. what does that mean for constructing an intelligence? It seems like it's so much less about storing specific data and more about just like, like historical examples and being like able to make certain, intuitions. Seems like there's certain things that are tied to regions of the brain. Like I, I know there's like, um, aren't there like certain kinds of brain injuries that will lead to like some motor function issues? Motor function like, and stuff. Because that's yeah. more like instinctual, I guess, uh, not instinctual, but like a lower Mechanical. level. Mechanical. Yeah. Yeah. But like the things that we would tie to intelligence, like knowledge, it doesn't seem like there's a, a place for that in the brain. Like it's just yeah. emergent behavior almost. Yeah, well, that was sort of the gist that I was getting. Yeah, too, same. Yeah. Was that it was, or like what we think of as intelligence and knowledge comes mostly from like stored experiences that yeah. we can throw together, we can piece together into new information on the fly, which was a little weird because when you think about it, that's kind of like what a lot, and maybe this is why, you know, neural nets are such a big field right now too, right? Because at least from my very layman understanding of it, that's roughly how they work yeah. is that you just like drop in a ton of existing data and then it can figure out what to do based on it. And I mean, maybe that's why that works because that's also how our brains work. Yeah. And it's also a little scary. It seems like it seems that's, a, that's like, the research tack he's taking here too, is yeah. like, that's where he would explore is essentially how do you replicate a brain in an, what would be called now a neural net and then seeing what properties emerge from that. Yeah, seeing what comes out of it. Yeah. Because it does seem to be what he's suggesting as kind of a fundamental layer of brain function yeah. is just this kind of like random firing of data where it gets to a critical mass and then a lot of these other processes emerge, right? Like consciousness, at least as we think of it, is just an emergent property from enough like memory and being able to compare things on the fly. Do you know if, um, well, I guess this is a larger question, so... Yeah. This is, it's not a tangent, but it's like related okay. to this, this idea of what intelligence is. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like there's a lot of terms that are thrown around, including in the book. And, you know, obviously we throw them around too, but like consciousness, intelligence, like some of these things could just be, and this is like playing devil's advocate. They could just be emergent from the sort of evolutionary pressures that humans evolved from. 
but intelligence, like it depends on what we mean when we say each of these terms, but the idea of a system with emergent properties that are similar to intelligence does not seem far-fetched if these principles that he is outlining here hold true. Consciousness possibly might still be far-fetched. Mm, like the idea of emotions, mean. like, yeah, like he gives, there's like, oh, I think it's the second to last chapter or the last chapter where he's talking about um, like, will computers ever feel like they might be able to repeat like a book? Or they might be able to like uh, transcribe a book, but is it going to be like a Mad Lib kind of thing where it's like constructing a sentence, mm. or is it actually going to feel like because you know can they appreciate the yes, book right? Like if you say like back. the death of a child, right? Like a computer today, even if you could create a system that could create that sentence at the appropriate time at the appropriate moment, would not feel the death of a child, right? Like the equivalent feeling might not emerge. Like you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like intelligence might emerge, but not consciousness and how are those two things connected i guess yeah i don't know if those are questions or if they yeah are. like how much of it is based on humans emerging out of the savannah and like our evolutionary history i guess versus the basic building blocks of how brains work i well, guess there, if that makes sense well there is i think there is actually some argument that we won't be able to really make an ai until we give it the other human functions mm, okay right i i don't remember where i was reading about this but it was sort of one of the arguments was that you need like sensory stimulus and some degree of emotional weighting and even like an amount of physical presence mm, in order like to create, a body almost yeah kind of like a body in order to create a at least a consciousness yeah. right intelligence i think as we might think of it can probably be done without any of that but to actually make something that would pass like a turing test right right that's what i was thinking yeah, yeah. i feel like it would need to have some of that human like experience yeah. in some or like awareness like of the world, right? Yeah. How does it gain that in its system, right? And that's the. I mean, ultimately, a lot of those things could probably just be coded in too, right? I mean, emotion. That's just an older form of right. hardwiring in the brain, right? And I, I think it's going to be harder to do that than the more modern parts of the brain, right? Because I think the lower we get in the like brain subsystems, the harder it'll be to program it in. Or would you even need to do that? So I guess that's where I'm going with it. It's like, depends on what the purpose of AI is. Like, I mean, I'm sure it might be a cool research experiment, but it's like, well, okay, this is obviously, this might be tying in a different book now, which maybe we'll do at some point, but Nick Bostrom's super intelligence. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. So if you're talking about AI for a particular application, that's sort of, okay, his example is always the paperclip one, right? right. You have an AI whose job it is to like maximize the output of paperclips, right? Would there ever be a situation where you would have programmed emotion into that <laughs> AI? Like, would there ever, have ever been a situation where that would have been necessary? Like, well, or I mean, does AI come first, like the actual intelligence part come first before you'd ever have even gotten to the experiment of like, can we program emotions into it? I, I mean, my argument would be that it would be harder to program in emotions I than agree. intelligence. Yeah, I totally agree with that, which makes me wonder if it'll ever actually happen. Oh, yeah, because it might just shoot past it and yeah, decide exactly. that it, it might doesn't just be want trivial that. or like, yeah. yeah, create a purely logical system. Because, you know, humans had evolved in reverse, right? Where we had like the pure emotional exactly. reflex. That's what I'm yep, exactly. Right? It was not like it came later, it came first. Yeah. And then. And so if you had a system that started with pure raw intelligence, right. would ever add in the yeah. emotions. Probably not. I'd probably just use like a statistical weighting method instead, right? Because right? yeah. most of our emotions are just decision heuristics. Yeah. yeah. So that's true. It like feels right. And that's actually a calculation, I guess, that's happening. Yeah. Well, and people who lose their emotional capacity can't make decisions anymore. Oh, really? That's sort okay. of, yeah, yeah. There have been some people who had so like cool. brain surgeries or like brain tumors that got removed and they lost all feelings. And then they literally just couldn't decide between things. They became purely logical. And so if you ask them, would you rather have like Thai food or Mexican food? 
they would spend hours oh, trying to decide man. unless you like made the decision for them. Reminds me of that thing of like a donkey halfway between exactly. like bird and ass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's e- equidistant between food and water, and equally hungry and thirsty, you will just die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't decide. Yeah, you need emotions to give you a push. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So anyway, this is like as you guys are probably gathering from this, it's like. There's not like a finite conclusion that he gets to at the end of this book. It's yeah, like, it's kind of like you were saying before we started. It's more like a series of essays yeah. musing on these topics. Right. And then there are like building blocks that he demonstrates. And then but that at the end, he's still like, OK, these are sort of my hypotheses. Right. It very much leaves it open for further discussion. Yeah. Right. Because I think he recognizes that this is going to be a major problem for the future. And obviously it's one that he's pretty involved in. And I think he's like just putting out all of these ideas and concepts here for like people to discuss them. I mean, the one thing that I thought was kind of interesting related to what we were just talking about with recognizing another intelligence was he's got that little section on a man and a woman arguing about seeing. Yep. And, you know, maybe we can find it in the book. Yeah. Okay. So this is the quote. It says, I can see your face, which is something you can't do. And the response is, but I can see your face, which you can't do. And the man responds, yes, but you're woman seeing it, not really seeing it. What you women do and call seeing is not what we men do. And, you know, he implies that the same argument goes the other way as well, where women can say the exact same thing to men. So nobody really knows what, you know, you can't really know what another person is seeing. Right. That's essentially what he's showing here. Well, uh, and they can't recognize, like, it might not be the same thing, right? It's kind of what he's saying. Like, there's no way to verify that what the woman is seeing is the exact same thing that the man is seeing. No, so I got a very different interpretation. Okay. Which is that he's providing a counter argument to the, well, a computer can never think. Ah, I see. Right? So it's easy for us to say like, oh no, consciousness is a human thing. Only we can be conscious, but it's just like a man saying that, oh no, a woman can't see, right? Yeah, although there is something to be said for it is two different perspectives though, right? So like men and women clearly don't see things the same way, (laughs) right? (laughs) And we say we all... Like you and I don't see things the exact same way. Right. I took it as like, there's no way for me to get inside your head to see exactly what you're seeing. So like we would never actually know what the computer is seeing. Right. We'd never know what they're seeing. And we would actually also never know if they were thinking or not. Even if we had all the outward signs of it. Just like they would never know if we're thinking. Exactly. They could think we're the ones who are lying and they would be equally correct. correct. Right. Or they could be equally correct. And then uh, it also reminded me of the simulation argument. It's like related. It's not quite the same argument, but it's like. There's no way to really know whether right. you're living in a simulation. <laughs> yeah. It's like, because like, you can't step outside the you system. You can't step outside the you're, system. You're in the loop, right? Yeah. And he's actually got a bit on that here, too, where, uh, yeah, he's talking about it with computers, but it applies to humans, too. He says, uh, no matter how a program twists and turns to get out of itself, it is still following the rules inherent in itself. It is no more possible for it to escape than it is for a human being to decide voluntarily not to obey the laws of physics. <laughs> Physics is an overriding system from which there can be no escape. However, there is a lesser ambition which it is possible to achieve. That is, one can certainly jump from a subsystem of one's brain to a wider subsystem. One can step out of ruts on occasion, right? So within our own systems, we can move up and down right. and like get ourselves out of you know a depressive period or something. But again, you can never fully step out of the system and observe it completely as a third party. As much as we like to think that we're objective and seeing ourselves as we really are right right? it's just like not possible (laughs) yeah yeah it's kind of cool how like this concept that basically starts with mathematics kind of goes so far beyond that yeah it's just like really interesting to see that well and just how it applies to like so many different areas too seriously right and his ability to relate it between music art 
math. Yeah, the way he like jumps between everything is very impressive. And it's like the research and the amount of background that must have gone into putting this book together. Or maybe he's just like that much of a that, just that much of a polymath, right? Yeah. Where he just actually already he's very he, knowledgeable. Yeah, he just knows about things. all these things and it was evident to him. It's I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> it's like the stuff's obvious. Um, you mentioned something a few minutes ago that maybe yeah. is worth a further discussion, but you mentioned like a Turing test. Maybe you want to explain a little bit about what the Turing test is. And Yeah, well, I, I mean, I feel like it's fairly in vogue. So people have a good idea of it, but it's this, uh, it was originally called the imitation game in his paper where a machine and a confederate would basically, or the confederate would go into another room and there'd also be a machine. And then you or I would sit at a computer terminal and we would send messages and then we would get responses from either the computer or the confederate. And if you were able to tell, or if you weren't able to tell which one was the computer and which one was the other person, that would indicate that the computer was intelligent, yeah. that it could you know, sufficiently deceive you and make you think that it was a real person. Yeah. Chatbots come to mind here. Yeah. You know, I mean, some of them have gotten really good. Like what's the open source one that just gets trained off of people using it? Uh, if no one's played around with this, you have to. It's really funny. It's kind of, it's very snarky. That reminds me though of like that Microsoft experiment they did with like the Twitter Remember oh, that one? Gosh, that one was such like, a mess. That was such yeah. a mess. <laughs> <laughs> that was one where it like turned into like a racist. Like, yeah, it turned into a racist, racist like sexist. Donald Trump supporter or something. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, by the yeah. end of like 24 hours. Or it was something. it was like within a few hours. Yeah. It was just, like the worst person imaginable. It was, like taking so offline. Yeah, I think maybe that's more effective of like the Twitter ecosystem than anything else. I was else. gonna say, <laughs> I feel like that's that's more of a condemnation of Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's an interesting question because he brings it up towards the end where he's talking about like, is conversation, I think, a suitable measure of intelligence? And I guess it's unclear what his conclusion was on that. But he seemed to think that, well, I guess the one thing that was interesting that he argued that we now know isn't really true is that he was saying that you either get the whole system or none of the system. So he thought that you couldn't have a chess program better than the best chess player unless it could also converse about things not related to chess. So like the whole thing with like Go, remember that Go AI? Well, <laughs> Go AI? I'm using yeah. quote AI. Like he would not define that as AI. Well, it's, it's unclear, I guess, in reading it, which version he meant. He would either say that that's not really AI, that's just a really good program, or he was just incorrect when he was making these predictions. And he said that yeah. in order for it to beat you at AI, it would have to be able to beat you at everything else. Got it. I'm not sure which one he's saying. So if you break that down, he used chess, right, as his example. Yeah. But he's basically saying chess is like a heuristic for intelligence. Right. That's right. essentially what he's using. So if that assumption is true, then if a program can beat a human at chess... It should be able to beat them at other things, too. Right. But I feel like we found that that's not true. Oh, no, it's 100% not true. But the the reason I'm inclined to think that's what he was getting at is that in the example he gives, he says that if a computer program could beat you at chess, then it could also choose not to play chess. Yeah, it could choose to do other things. Yeah, it could say, like, oh, I'd rather go read poetry instead or something, right? Which is kind of a a funny thing to imagine. And that obviously, you know, hasn't happened. Like, Deep Blue won out in, I think, the 90s or something. Yeah, but it's not going to, like, be like, oh, I'm tired. I want but it's a pure chess machine. And so I, I guess that was one area where maybe he wasn't totally right. But I can also see how that would be a compelling argument about how intelligence would have to develop. Right. Because to be fair, the do reason. You, do you know how those programs work? Like Deep Blue? Like how. 
because maybe he was envisioning like the building blocks of that being very different. Yeah, that's probably part of so it. So it started from I different mean, basic assumptions. I mean, to be fair, so. he wrote this in like the 70s. So right. how much computing processor power was there? Because isn't right, like, he actually, this is a really interesting section of the book, which we yeah. haven't even talked about yet, is as he's talking about chess, he talks about how human players like are predicting certain number of moves ahead. And maybe he's so I, there's total speculation on my part, but I'm guessing the Deep Blue program yeah. probably like projects out all the possible moves and then... Brute force, yeah. Yeah, it's essentially brute force method, right? So like as computing power increases, that becomes easier to do. And he may not have seen that path in the yeah. 70s because it was, would have just been too many possible combinations. Let's see if we can find it because it would be cool to see how exactly it worked out. Yeah, that was basically research, what it did. It was right? doing a tree search. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so the way Deep Blue, we're looking at this right now, the way it works, it does a tree search was basically looking at all the different combinations of moves and then like all the possible combinations of moves on top of that, then all the possible combinations on top of that. So it's essentially brute force method. And it seemed like, I mean, there's no way we'd be able to pull out this quote now, but <laughs> it seems like, I remember him saying in the book, it's like, there's too many combinations to do that, which when he wrote it is totally true. Oh, yeah, 100% Couldn't true. Couldn't do it. <laughs> right. Because if you consider, right, so Deep Blue was created in 96. Oh, yeah. This is when he talked about the chunking thing. He was like, he basically said like a good human player doesn't even see the bad moves. Exactly. They just they see know what is a good move and bad moves. So they won't even compute the bad moves. They right. just know that certain moves are bad. Which is kind of cool if you listen to people talk about uh, like the pros who can play multiple games at once. Or any sport, you see that. Too. Well, no, no, but I'm saying specifically with chess, the okay. pros who can play multiple oh, yeah, games. yeah, because they're like bouncing between boards. Well, but uh, what they'll say is that if they show up and somebody has changed the pieces to try to get an advantage, the board will look broken to them. Mm. Like they can just immediately tell that the other person has cheated. That's really Because the, like the chunks don't make any sense. Yeah. Yep. And that's kind of crazy, that's right? That's really interesting. As like yep. an amateur chess player, I can't even imagine. No. Right? Uh, <laughs> that feels like, but I, I think we all have that experience in other areas oh, too. Oh, totally. Yeah. Where your intuition just kind of hits and you're like, mm, something's, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Right? Yep. Like I get that with writing sometimes, right? And like, it'll hit you before you even can verbalize what, what the is problem going on. is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so. no, it's fascinating. And it seems like that, is obviously not what's happening with the Deep Blue program from what right. we just searched. But you can see at. why he was thinking. Yes. That would have been the exactly. way to do it. Right. So maybe if it was doing something like that, you're essentially saying it has intuition, right? If from his way of describing how a chess program would beat a human chess player, he's basically saying it would, it would need intuition. Right. I think, yeah, I think he's suggesting it would need to be able Right, to which then you see why his assumption would hold because it's like, if it has intuition, then it can probably decide not to do something. Right. <laughs> yeah. There were a few other interesting predictions he had there that I feel like are kind of cool to talk about. So I guess on the surface, he was wrong about that, about the chess thing. But if you dive deeper, it's not really that he's wrong. Just the way that, I guess, researchers went about building a program that could beat a human in chess was just a different method. Yeah. I think it's cool that he included these just as like a time capsule yep. thing. He's got one here where he says the a thinking computer might not be able to add very quickly because it will take like too much processing power to be able to think and respond to questions or it won't also be able to do like rapid computation is sort of funny. Which made a lot of sense actually when he described it like that. Yeah. Like he was saying, oh, you could have a separate calculator within the artificial brain, but it would add processing time and then it might be the exact same amount of time as it takes us to add things. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I guess the only thing would be it's not typing it into the calculator. That's like the only difference. Right. It would right. be done at like the speed of thought. But yeah, just kind of you like and I could add two plus two in our head also. Right. But there's like a 
limit i guess to how we would like there's like a number where it gets too high probably at least for me yeah to add. <laughs> yeah. well and then he also points out the difference between the like hardware software mm. right where there's all of these lower level processes going on that we don't have access to yeah right oh, yeah. that our brains can do yeah. that we don't and so i think part of his argument as well is that if it is a thinking machine that it too must have lower level processes that it cannot access right because right? it would just take up too much of its thought if it has to control its breathing at every moment right right or yeah. the equivalent or the equivalent yeah like the power supply or plug like, in. Yeah, yeah i assume you wouldn't program in breathing it's, yeah but I mean, <laughs> maybe you think about it like power supply is like similar yeah exactly. it's a similar thing it's like yeah it's i mean i guess for us our power supply air quotes is food water food, water air air sunlight sort yeah. of vitamins yeah, yeah. that's kinda, like our power supply yeah we're kind of complicated Basically, yeah just run on solar That'd yeah be much more efficient <laughs> yeah there's a lot in this book <laughs> yeah and there's a lot but it's also at the same time it's like all connected to the same exactly basic idea and it's like hard to know exactly what some of the takeaways are right what are the like core lessons that mm-hmm. you walk away with i mean i feel like a big one for me is recognizing this like incompleteness to our own understanding of our consciousness may be a function of the system it may not be something that needs to be solved because i feel like there's always this work in ai towards we need to figure out you know how our minds work so we can program it in it's in philosophy too right Right. but one argument from here might be that like no we can never yeah we can understand the consciousness of every system below us but we can never understand ours because to do that we would have to be a higher level of consciousness right which you are not which we're not yeah and i've heard that argument for i've heard that as an argument against the simulation theory as well Mm. which is that a system cannot simulate an equally complex system and i'm not sure like how compelling that is but it basically says that what if we're less complex yeah and that would be one counterpoint is that there isn't actually anything beyond earth or beyond the milky way right everything beyond that is simulated and then like the real universe it actually has a universe, but we're just in like a little simulated galaxy, right? Runs for, you know, some tens of thousands of years or and then we like break out. Get really crazy. What if our universe is as big as we think it is, but that is, but that is a, simulation. a yeah. simulation, which would obviously be like, if you're talking about computer power, be insane. Yeah. But if you think about it at the same time, an ant could be talking to another, like air quotes again, talking to another ant and being like, wow, I heard like, what if there's an anthill that's like 10 feet high or 100 feet <laughs> high? Like, but that would take more power than like all the ants in the world combined. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, so they think it's like this order of magnitude that's like beyond possible. But really, it's like for us, not anywhere close to being beyond possible. It's like yeah. not a power we hold in our phones. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah like yeah. the scale that we think is like incredibly large and complex might actually be not big yeah but this is all relative yeah Yeah. (laughs) but i mean building off of that though it did make me i i go back and forth on this so much where on the one hand i think that i mean i i think pretty strongly that the self doesn't exist Mm. that seems fairly self-evident from like psych research and stuff and it's just a very convenient illusion it's like a heuristic almost yeah it's like a heuristic it's a way for us to make ourselves not die right like give ourselves a sense of importance so that we like keep working hard and who is that give ourselves like who is doing the giving and who is doing the receiving? It's, it's the ants. <laughs> it's the ants down there. <laughs> Sorry, I just I couldn't resist. <laughs> but my point I was start wrenching like, your loop. <laughs> it, it made me feel more like AI will just sort of happen as an emergent process at some point, right? Where there's actually nothing special about human intelligence. It's really just a function of you know a certain amount of 
processing power and some underlying structure that allows it to operate so efficiently. And, you know, eventually we'll we'll hit that. And like, we don't know what will happen when we hit that. That's a different discussion. Will we recognize but it when we hit it? I guess that's another question too, yeah. right? Is like... Like, what if we've already hit... Like, what if the internet is in artificial intelligence? I've heard that like, argument made before, yeah, right? Like, what like, if it is, but we just were too, like, granular... Because like that would be a whole system, right? In that, in the internet's case, we are essentially the neurons of the internet. Yeah. yeah. So would we recognize the internet as being an intelligent <laughs> system? Well, hey, I mean, if I were an emergent intelligence with access to every human in the world, right? Like, what yeah. would I do? I'd probably just like try to get them really used to using me all the time. And well, we're feeding like, it basically. Yeah. <laughs> right. We're growing it. We're like feeding it with more power. Like we're adding more websites. We're adding more internet of things. We're right? going like, to take it to another we're planet. We're building it. Yeah. We're, we're going to, we're at, like giving every human on the planet access to it. Like, yeah, it's almost like who's the like who's the host and who's the parasite kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it's funny when you frame it like that, it makes me think of wheat, right? Yeah, we've talked about this before, we talked not about, on a podcast. I don't think on a podcast, yeah. yeah. yeah it's we got to like, do sapiens sometimes because this, yep. this sometimes comes up in there. But the plant, right, wheat basically domesticated humans. Right. I mean, think about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, it did. Like we spread it all around. It was this wild grass before. <laughs> yeah, not nutritious. <laughs> One right? specific strain of wild grass. That mm. now is like the dominant everywhere. crop in the world, yeah. right? And so it's like who domesticated who? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean definitely wheat won there. I always think about there. that every time I make beer. Mm. Uh, I always think about it for yeast. Yeah, where I'm like literally, you spend hours building this like happy environment for yeast, basically to multiply and eat. It's just like a little germ colony. Yeah, yeah. And it's basically, but like you do all the work that you insert them into this place where they multiply and then they produce this nice substance for you right which then makes you want to make it more and then it's like really who colonized who because <laughs> yeah. well, i mean the specific strain that um uh and i'm probably messing up how to pronounce this but it's like saccharomyces cervice i think is how you pronounce it that's the specific i guess genus of or species of yeast that makes beer there's other yeast strains that are used to make like wine or like liquor and things like that. But for beer, that's what it is. And it was just one, like there's, there's many other strains of yeast that are similar to it, but this is the one that has multiplied the most because we use it right. the most to make beer. Uh, so it won out. It, it won out. This, make this one tasty It drink. used humans basically to, yeah. to make this tasty beverage for us to multiply. There you go. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that was a tangent, sort of. Well, but, but these immersion <laughs> processes are kind of interesting because, like you said, would we even recognize the system? Would we even recognize when? It? I, don't, I don't know. Because I agree with you. You going back to what you were saying before, just before you move on to this other idea, I agree with you that like this book made me a lot more confident. I guess that AI will or has emerged because it does seem like I sort of took him at face value with a lot of his <laughs> assumptions, but like. Yeah. It seems plausible, right? That if you had a system with enough complexity, an AI could be an emergent property. Like before I was definitely more on the fence. Now I'm like a lot, I think much more in like the AI is possible camp. But I totally agree with you is like, yeah, like it's emergent, but I'm still on the fence of like, would we recognize it? Or are we not complex enough to com recognize it? Yeah, well, I, I mean, a perfect example of that is the termite colonies. Where he has those examples of the termites building those arches, those big structures, oh, yeah, right. right? And no individual termite knows how to do that. Or they might not even be aware of the overall structure. Yeah, they probably, probably just not. know their particular like place where they're placing that grain. Of and they just know to go up, right? And it eventually kind of falls over into this arch structure. Yep. And I was looking at that and I was thinking, oh, there's it's no so architect. cool. That, yeah, there's no architect. It just sort of emerges into this interesting structure by some, you know, kind of chance of all of their instincts combining. And then you have 
have to start to wonder, okay, how much of our own intelligence and how clever we think we are is yeah. just some emergent property of yeah. our, you know, number of neurons firing, yeah. right? It's like, we might not actually be all that smart. There's just right. all these emergent <laughs> instincts, right? I think like, if you read The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, he talks yet, about this. Yeah, it's like 40% of your actions are habits. Yeah. We're just going through something habitually, not even thinking about it, right? And that can happen for intellectual processes yeah. too, right? Where you're responding to messages. Just how you think of anything. Like, yeah. It is so much of it is habit, like what kinds of questions you ask, like where you poke holes in different arguments. It's, that is habit in a lot of ways, unless you're actively working on it. Right. I wonder, though, where I thought you were going to go with that is like the human structures that we've created. Uh, how much of these are sort of not really directed by anyone? I mean, I guess then they aren't right. Like the Internet is not there's not like Internet czar. Internet's an emergent <laughs> like, structure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, governments, Gover I think yeah. in a lot of cases, societies in general, societies. Cultures, I mean, this is kind of like uh because we always have to go to back to anti-fragile at least once, right? Yeah, that's a requirement. Like, teaching birds how to fly top yeah. down versus bottom up. Yeah. I think most of our things are bottom up and they start to break down when we get to top down on them, right? But taking one level higher though, how many of the structures that actually exist, if you could zoom out of humanity, would be there that we just can't even see? Like, what do you mean? So imagine us being the termites in this scenario. We can't oh, see the arch. What else can we not see? Yeah. yeah, like we can't see the actual structure, but if somebody was zoomed out of the system, they could see it. Well, it, we, I wouldn't know. I'm not yeah. a member of this no, system, true. Exactly. right? We so like, step but out. I'm just saying it's a right. really interesting idea that if there was like some entity that was zoomed out, what they could see versus not see. Well, it's kind Maybe of computers will tell us one day. I was going to say, it's kind of one of those things that data and things can show us, right? right? Like epidemiology, right? We might not notice certain trends, but then you get enough data and you can start to see these yeah. correlations, right? Yeah. But I wonder, going back to incompleteness though, are there things that we just aren't capable? Because we built the systems that are giving us that data. Yeah. Right? No, I, I think that's fair. So you see what I'm saying though? Yeah, okay, like, yes. I'm just Obviously, playing devil's advocate. Be, I'm just yeah. playing devil's advocate here. I'm like, is that what the tortoise does? Yeah, it's the tortoise. Then, does. Yeah, it's like, so yeah, but there will always be something you can't see with your machine because you built the machine. So exactly, it's still, it's right. a layer down from you. Exactly. So like, I'm playing the tortoise here. You can never fully pop out. <laughs> oh, I'm just being annoying. No, but, no, I know. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think it's both, right? Right, yeah. There's definitely these emergent structures that we have not noticed until we had a machine to help us. Yes. And it's probably yeah. going to be even more that we'll just never see that exist. And he talked about this when he was talking about the neurons. So jumping mm -hmm. back a little bit, uh, but it, it connects. Like, I wonder how much of intelligence is not about the structure of the neuron itself. Like, that might just be what happened to be the system that created this binary format. It doesn't have much to do with the actual, like, physical neuron but more about the relationships between the different neurons, mm. right? And in the same way, data kind of illuminates the relationships between individual humans or the way data moves between different humans, whether that data is money or it's anything, right? Like right. that essentially is what a market is mapping and showing in a context that we can interpret. But it's about the relationships between people as opposed to like Nat is made of H2O and hmm. nitrogen. You know, it's not like it's not really about the structure of the human. It's more about the behavior that we're exhibiting. At, and you can only see that at a large enough scale. Well, and also the superstructures that come out of the underlying mechanical pieces. Right. I feel like that was part of what he was getting at with the neurons mm. is that if you recreated 
you know, basically neurons, which is basically like binary in a system that does not on its own give it intelligence, right? Because just creating the binary system won't create right. this emer- created yeah, a binary created, system. Right? Yeah. It, there's something higher on the symbol level, which is what he talks about a lot, right. where we create these symbols and symbols tend to correspond to like groups of neurons firing in certain ways. Right. But it's something like you said about that combination and that interaction that gives it the greater meaning. Right. But then it's weird because, and again, like strange loopiness, mm-hmm. right? Where is that coded for, right? right? There's no isomorphism between people for these symbols. Yes. They're all created uniquely. And yet we both have similar ideas in our head about what a car is. Yes. And it's such a strange thing to think of. It's, I mean, it's almost what Jung's ideas are in the collective consciousness stuff. He doesn't dive mm. as deep as this. He doesn't obviously talk about like the building blocks of how those symbols emerge. He talks about the symbol layer and how there are these collective symbols that essentially exist across humanity, whether that's like the idea of a dragon or like what water represents or like mm. there's all these different things, right? That he talk like he talks about the symbol layer, but it's a similar thing that you think about when he- you read anything by Jung where you're like, where is this coded for? Like, how uh-huh. do we all have these symbols in common? Yet it's not like my, like there's nothing physically linking my brain to yours that we know of, right? Dude, and it's like- Ancient, ancient society. <laughs> Those 50 or so people who gave birth to the rest of humanity. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> they had a shared mythology. We've kept it ever since then. No, I'm, I'm joking. No, I mean- Like, like I mean, 80% yeah. joking. Yeah, I mean, we don't know, right? But yeah. I guess, yeah, but- yeah, I don't know. It's like my first thought when I was reading Jung was, uh, and I haven't read all of Jung, obviously, mm-hmm. so that's like a monstrous <laughs> amount of of uh, reading. But my thought when I was reading the Red Book is that maybe there are structures of our brain that are all the same mm-hmm. that lead to these symbols, mm-hmm. which like that's essentially like our building blocks are the same, which lead to these symbols, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So maybe it's not about like collective consciousness, like collective consciousness is like a euphemism maybe or a heuristic for thinking about this idea of all of us having a similar structure that leads to the same symbols. So when you first hear the term collective consciousness, you think like, oh, everyone's brains are linked and like it's very hippie kind of idea, (laughs) right? But like maybe that's not actually what it means. Maybe it's more just like we have the same substructures which Mm -hmm. emerge to the same symbols. I mean, that would make sense, right? I think Peterson has talked about this where he says that we have like a hard-coded fear of snakes. Right. And that would explain where the dragon myth comes from, where it's like a combination of what you fear. Yeah, what you fear, right? Is guarding guarding the treasure. Right, guarding what you you most value or or not most value, but most desire. Yeah. And so there could be definitely some element of that where there are these underlying elements that have like codified into a shared mythology. We can't access that. Right. Or, it's kind of like the heart. It's kind of like the machine code layer for computers. Yeah. And it could I, be that. I, just, I had like a, a cool extension of that based on our power of myth episode, which is that it may not be that the underlying substructures, right? Like fear of snakes code the mythology, but it may affect what mythology sticks. Mm, okay. Yes. Right? Yeah. So nah, I could see that. Yep. If, you know, a small troubadour from China makes it over to the Italian peninsula with a story of a great mythical beast covered in scales and, you know, big fangy teeth and a long tail. And be like, like, oh, that, that sounds like a snake. They're like, yeah. yeah, okay, I get that. Right. But if they have some other strange myth about like, or some local, yeah, some locally local relevant thing. animal or something that like doesn't right. exist. Like a tiger. Right. Like I was thinking like Australia, like a platypus or something. Like that, <laughs> yeah. would not, that would not resonate anywhere. <laughs> but, but I mean, even a tiger right? or a black it's not swan. Gonna makes sense. Yeah, excellent, exactly. <laughs> yeah, even a tiger, you're right. Although there were, lions in, there were lions and stuff in uh, Europe. That's true, there were before. European lions. I don't know when they Although died Although that out. was a long that was time ago. Yeah. That was pre-Greece and everything. That, yeah, that was pre-written language. Yeah, that sure. was definitely pre-written language. Yeah. So, But it wasn't pre-humans. Not pre-humans. No. But I guess I mean, it we killed them off. It could be oral, <laughs> it could be oral tradition. That yeah. Was, 
kept it. But yeah, I know I know what you're saying though. It would have, It'd to, have be to be something that is universally feared, right? Yeah. And I think snakes is kind of everywhere in the world yeah, you go, exactly. you're worried about snakes. Yeah, so even like Native Americans, even though they're separated, like they obviously are snakes in North America. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, that's actually an interesting point. That, that could be part it of would it. be the ones that stick yeah. because that's the common experience. There's some so. underlying stuff for it to like latch onto. And to translate between cultures too. Like when we hear it, we're like, oh wow, yeah, that myth makes sense. And I get then, that. Yeah. yeah. And then it lives on. Otherwise it might have died out. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Many layers of complexity here. <laughs> I know. This is a great book. At it's the very minimum, it makes you think. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it definitely makes you think a lot. I wonder if there's any other big ideas that we haven't touched on that we should try to cover. I mean, it's funny. This is the biggest book, and I feel like we have the least coherent. Well, no, yeah. I mean, there's no like final conclusion. You can't be like, this book meant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, here is your step-by-step guide to prepare for the apocalypse. Right. Right? Like, yeah. listen, listen to the last episode if you want that. This right? podcast will not save your life. <laughs> um, the only other... Thing that at least I had in my notes was the Alan some of the Alan Turing stuff. Okay, like there was that one thing, and we can actually pull it out of the book. It's on oh the ESP stuff. Yeah, like how yeah, Alan Turing believed in ESP. And well, I don't know. Okay, so I didn't. ESP, I didn't get the sense that he believed in ESP, but no, he, he like believed in the statistical relevance of it. Yeah, he had to leave the door open for it or something. It was yeah. like up here. Yeah. My own point of view, contrary to Turing's, is that ESP does not exist. Then Turing's point: uh, the argument from extrasensory perception. So this is basically he's providing an objection to his Turing test where he says, let us play the imitation game using as witnesses a man who is good as a telepathic receiver and a digital computer. The interrogator can ask such questions as what suit does the card in my right hand belong to? The man by telepathy or clairvoyance gives the right answer 130 times out of 400 cards. The machine can only guess at random and perhaps gets 104 right. So the interrogator makes the right identification. So does that hold up? Like, have people done that? Yeah, or does that experiment hold up? Like the example he just gave, the 130 out of 400 where random would be 104 out of 400? Well, I mean, mathematically, theoretically, it holds up. No, but, but like, does that actually happen in real life? Oh, is my yeah. point, like people who claim that they have ESP, are there like actually people who you keep, You can, let's say if you did this experiment 100 times with the mm-hmm. same person, you could get lucky and have a outlier of 130. But if you, on average, get 130 over like a big enough sample size, you're probably gonna be like, "What? Like, yeah, like what something, is going something on right going now? On here. Either it's a flawed test, or like there's something, or there's some other non-ESP explanation. Right, exactly. So, like, right. I think that's what he's saying is that there's some non-ESP explanation. Yeah. But Turing seemed to leave the door open. Right. Because the way you, even he words this question when I was reading that, I was like, wait, because <laughs> he doesn't talk. He talks about that after he ta- like gives the number nine example of like the extrasensory perception. Right. He gives the explanation at the end of that, like the 130 out of 400 as opposed to 104 out of 400. Yeah. yeah. That comes later. He first starts talking about clairvoyance and telepathic receiver. And I'm right. like, uh, where's he going with this? This is very odd to see Alan Turing talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I was kind of curious about that, too. Like, and then Hofstetter says that like Turing is a said reluctant to accept yeah. the idea that ESP is real, but did so nonetheless being compelled by his outstanding scientific integrity. To accept the consequences of what he viewed as powerful statistical evidence in favor of ESP. Like Alan Turing is a pretty smart guy, too. So that's why I was like, uh, what is going on right now? Yeah. What he's talking about. I'm wondering if there were like false stats at the time that Turing was considering the question. And then he was like, well, there's been these studies on. I'm sure he didn't do the studies himself. Right. So it I'm could have just been what was in vogue at the time. Yeah. Or it could be like, oh, just like we're seeing plenty of studies get debunked now. Right. Sure. There were studies that were done at that time that were like, well, this person got did a thousand card tests and got 
higher than statistically possible. Turing was doing a lot of this research around World War II era, right. and all of the psychic stuff was a lot bigger back then. Right. And I think every military in the world had people working on psychic stuff yeah. uh, like as warfare, yeah. right? So it could have been related to that, maybe, yeah. I don't know, or it, it's hard to say. So that's what makes me think that maybe there were like, I don't know, there was something, because he's not stupid. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Is not dumb. And it doesn't seem like this is like a pattern with him. Right. You know, there's like some people you're like, okay, like they're brilliant, but they're prone to believing or saying some pretty Confusing far-fetched things. Yeah. things as well. He doesn't come across as that kind of person. Right, this is like the only exception to Exactly, it. right. So yeah. which makes me think there's something that we don't there's some information we don't know yeah it was actually kind of funny with the esp thing because it relates to this other idea that hofstadter brings up in the last chapter about your own sanity oh yes how that can be its own strange loop where as soon as you start to question your own sanity you get caught in this tighter and tighter vortex as he calls it you should definitely bring that yeah where it's like well okay how do i know if i'm sane it's like well an insane person would think they're sane yeah (laughs) and you know if i ask my friends and they say i'm sane like well of course they're going to say that because they don't want me to like kill them (laughs) right and so how would i know what would be the sign it's like, well, one time I might be asking if you're saying it's like, oh, God, but I'm already asking that. Yeah. So I must be. It's, right. <laughs> it's <laughs> like is, a law. It's like an infinite loop. Again, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that itself might even be one of the easiest to understand you strange loops. Have you ever had that thought or like I haven't had it about the insane thing. I've had it around. Uh, it was it, No, it's related to the sanity thing. It's like was well, definitely related to like the simulation idea mm. or like the matrix idea almost of like. Well, how do you know if you're living in a matrix? Like, net, are we living in a matrix? And then that would be like, no. Well, that's like, it's sort of the whole idea would, behind. Uh, if he's in the matrix, he would say, of course he would say that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's the whole idea behind um, what's called when you think you're the only person who exists. Solipsism. Yeah. So it's like, well, I can't, you know, I have no idea that anybody else really exists, right? It just It seems like they do, but obviously a simulation, they would be programmed to think right. that. The one example where I've questioned it a couple of times is social situations. Okay. Have you ever been in like a social setting where you see somebody and they're just completely unaware of how annoying they are to everyone around them? <laughs> yeah. And they're just like being completely obnoxious. Everybody's uncomfortable, but nobody's saying anything and they have no idea that they're making people think that way. Yep. I'll observe that. And then in the back of my head, I'll be like, wait, what if I'm doing that? Right. Like all the time. Like I would never know. Like yes. they have no idea. Yes, exactly. They're completely unaware it's that they're not just, like they're, they are totally aware that like, yeah, I'm making everybody uncomfortable. Yeah. It's they like, just like think this is totally normal behavior and nobody's giving them shit for it. And like, you're seeing other people not give them shit for it. And so then you know that like, well, if somebody people acts, act, yeah. Yeah. So people act that way and they get no negative feedback. So I could be acting that way and not be getting like, how would I know? Right. Nope. Nobody's telling me. And then you go and you ask a friend, right? Like, Hey, do I ever do that? And then they'll be like, no, what are you talking about? But you'd be like, of course, but of course they're going to say that. (laughs) I think that's the one example that I, I've definitely noticed happen a couple of times. Is that like Asperger's too? Like, is that where you have less EQ? Oh, well, Asperger's definitely makes you care less about the perceptions of people around you. Or just less aware of it too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a little bit both. Autism is definitely when you're unaware, right? You just can't respond to social cues. And well, Asperger's is like a lower, like a milder form of autism, I think. So it's probably pretty related. Yeah. That just made me think about of that. It's like, because the person is not aware of that. But then you sometimes wonder, you're like, I wouldn't be aware of it because how would I know? Right. If I was aware of it, I would change my behavior. Right. So it's like, it's a loop. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a strange loop. That's definitely one of the strange loops that pretty much anybody can identify with, right? But at the same time, there's this necessity of strange loopiness, right? He makes the point in here a few times that if a system becomes self-referential, it will necessarily have strange loops. 
Mm. Right. The perfect one is the Epimenides paradox. Yeah. Right. This statement is a lie. Yeah. I love that. As soon as language becomes self-referential, there have to be strange loops. Yeah. Or even right. the one it's like the following sentence is false. Right. Well, the, this no. statement is or this like, statement is the next statement is true. The previous statement is a lie. Yes. That's yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That creates that. You know, yeah. It's like you have no two step loop. Exactly. Right. Yep. And because language can be self-referential, it necessarily creates those. And for humans, we can just sort of go like, oh, well, OK, it's paradox, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? we, we don't we don't care. <laughs> The Hopefully folks. people care about this podcast. I will know. Like, uh, the whole podcast. <laughs> <is about>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, no, I know what you mean though. Yeah. yeah. You could like go on with your day. Right. You could be like, okay, yeah, there's a paradox, but nah. oh well, yeah. You, you can't create a system without those loops though. Right. If it's going to be a sufficiently yeah, complex yeah, system, it. if it's going to be complex, interesting, robust, whether that's math or, you know, like art or language, yeah. it has to have some of these self-referential paradoxes in it. And so it's going to have to exist in whatever intelligence we create in a machine system, right? We can't just like avoid any paradoxes and say like, oh, it doesn't compute. Yeah. It has to be part of the system for it to be sufficiently robust, which is weird to think about. It's very weird to think about. You have to build in the ability to handle so that's paradoxes. Was, so literally, that's where I was just about to go. You just read my mind. Yeah. Some ESP going on over here. Mm. But um, I was thinking like, you know, when you like you've, you code, so like, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about when you write like an infinite loop, your program like can't escape, just crashes. Yeah. Just goes, yeah. So I was thinking about that. I was like, if you think about it, a paradox, like a human considering a paradox mm. is kind of an infinite, like that example you just gave. This statement is true. The following statement. Wait, the first sentence is this statement. The statement is, is no, the next, next statement is true. The yeah, previous statement, statement is a lie. lie. There right. Go. Yeah. Because right. then you then you have an in, yeah, sorry, yeah, we gotta get the, that right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you gotta have a yeah, because then you can have a loop. Right. That's kind of like an infinite loop in programming. Yeah. Which your program would just crash, but like in theory it could go on computing forever. It just wouldn't know where how to resolve it. I mean, it. we've just said like five or six verbal paradoxes right. and like we just don't care. Like a computer would have to recognize like that this is a paradox like there's no resolving this one yeah no matter how many times i loop through but what's the line where you like because you the way i'm imagining this is this is gonna get well, maybe too technical it's like you start at a count of zero mm-hmm. and then every time you run through the loop it's like you you basically have a counter going yeah. through the loop you have a set point where like that loop will essentially exit because it's not gonna be resolved that was one of the other broader points he was making is how human intelligence broadly picks up unrelated symbols to whatever we're doing and he gives a few fun examples in the book where he has a whole paragraph where he ends every line of the paragraph with the same words right or it's something like one at a time one at a time one at a time is at the end of every line of the paragraph and we immediately pick up on it because we see it we hear it but a system that's just programmed to scan a book page would not pick up on that It, it doesn't care exactly right Yep. And so we have this kind of like symbol pattern processing layer going on where we notice, you know, like, OK, well, this is a never ending loop. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to get out of it now. Yes, exactly. But yep. a less robust system might just like try or, going through so it forever. That's, where my, that's my question, right? Is there a robust enough system where you can exit the paradox? Mm. Like, I, I don't know. because I, I don't know if there are programs that can do that today. Maybe there are. Not sure. I mean, you could do the counter thing, right? Where you've gone yeah. through it a thousand times, but maybe there is something that happens on the thousand and first time that you would miss. If yeah, I mean, although humans miss shit all the time. I wonder if we can find a good chatbot online where if you ask it one of these paradoxes, it has some clever responses. There's got to be some of them out but there. But that's hard coded, maybe, right? Oh, like are be, you right? hard coding that? Like, okay, if they ask this question, like, yeah, if they ask like, <laughs> like Siri, uh, who created you, or something. I don't know. I'm just like a silly example. Sure, they, they like, definitely have stuff there. Wait, hold on. Let's it, see. Wait, what, what would, what would be a paradox that like Siri would? Hey Siri, is this statement a lie? 
No, not ally. <laughs> and the demonstration of Siri's capabilities, folks. <laughs> hey, Siri, is this statement a lie? Interesting question. That's really all you're giving me? <laughs> Should ask Alexa. I guess it's a good way out. Okay, let's try this. Hey, Google, is this statement a lie? Hmm, maybe. I think so. All right, so we're not getting very far away. Is that one even a paradox, though? Is this statement a lie? Yes, it is a lie. Therefore, it's true. But if it's true, then true. it's a lie. So yeah, yeah it's, it is, it is a, yeah. Okay, yeah. It's just a single step. Yeah, okay. Loop. So the, the AIs are not... <laughs> they're not here yet. <laughs> they're not here yet. Yeah, they're just, they're just backing out. <laughs> yeah, no, I guess so that's the fundamental question, which I don't... I mean, I don't know enough about coding even to know if this is possible, right? But that's yeah. something I'd be curious about. Maybe if somebody has, you know, listening to this has thought about this question more deeply than we have. But like, starting with the building blocks that we have, right, for code... Is there a system that can emerge that can like get its way out of these paradoxes? <laughs> like a yeah. human can where it's like, okay, I'm bored. Right. Out. Like what's the equivalent? Like how you're not coding well, in boredom. Is that an emergent property? <laughs> like where the computer is just like, okay, I've run through this thing a thousand times. Like it's not going to change. I mean, to be I'm fair out. though, <laughs> when I brought up seeing if any chatbots online right now can do it, you said, oh, but is that hard coded in? Right. The counterpoint might be like, what's the difference? Right. So are you saying every paradox? Are we hard coded with every paradox though? Yeah, maybe we're just hard coded to not know. (laughs) Well, but I think maybe death is like a perfect one, right? Where something in our brain allows us to just exit the considering death scenario where we say, okay, no, you know what? This isn't going to get us anywhere. Like, obviously I'm just going to have a mental breakdown if I think about this too hard. So I'm quitting. And we can apply an emotion to that, but at the end of the day, there must be uh, something yeah. that's causing us to step out of considering and that's like it. our quote machine code or yeah, something that's like our, telling us yeah. to yeah, and so, or not even letting us not uh, even letting us think about it think about hard. it too hard yeah because I mean I'll go down that rabbit if hole. You think about it thing. almost like Stoicism and Zen Buddhism too are like somewhat trying to step into that machine code and mm-hmm. ponder your death. Yeah, a little. I mean, right. That's like what a lot of what like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius is about. I think they're kind of opposites in that regard. Yeah, where I actually think Stoicism is about avoiding thinking about death, in that like they talk about pondering it right. and like being prepared for it and everything, but at the same time, it's about not worrying about it. It's not because it'll be gone. Like, the non-existence part afterward. Yeah, yeah. It's more about like getting you to do the stuff today, almost right. Like right or like yeah. Or not being wrapped up in it, not being, not like being worried. Yeah, it's like, oh, well, you're going to be gone anyway, so don't worry about yeah, so that. Yeah, yeah. And Zen Buddhism, I feel, or at least I felt like it's just trying to get you into that, or it's trying to take you into that headspace and then be okay with it, right? Where Stoicism, Stoicism the argument is like, don't think about it. Right. Zen Buddhism is like, embrace the it's absurdity. It's like, think about it a yeah, lot. It's like, then, hang out in the yeah. strange loop. Don't yeah. quit the system, but yeah, don't look for an answer either. Loop. That's yeah. a really good way of wording it. Yeah, hang out in the strange loop. And that's like the koans too, or is that what you pronounce Yeah, the koans. Koans, yeah. yeah. Exactly. They're just, they're meant to get you in that strange loopy territory and then realize that all of your other thoughts are just kind of absurd too. And then do something silly, right? Like it seems like all of their responses to koans are like jokes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So there's no conclusion. No conclusion. Amazing book. Ties together a lot of things we've talked about. We've got Buddhism, we've got art, art, music, got music, got a little bit of stoicism in there. A lot of speculation, a lot of math. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, phenomenal. Like, if you can 
work your way through it i think it will make you think about a lot of stuff that you haven't thought about too much before yeah i think it's also just good like if you want to exercise sort of like uh and really this came up and amusing ourselves to death but it's like this is a book that will like exercise those brain muscles yeah for sure and it's good i mean it's it's just a really interesting and he's a fun writer he is like he makes it very fun it could have been way more dry yeah and he's a lot of jokes there's a lot of jokes a lot of humor yeah. It almost like could have been a podcast, like a 10 hour, like Dan Carlin, like multiple episode, like yeah. podcast series. Yeah. And he's woven in the book too. Like he adds himself as a character at one oh, point yeah. within the dialogues uh, yeah. and he just seems like a fun guy. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely recommend checking this out. Whether or not you have a background in AI, like I don't have an AI background at all. Just sort of a I don't know, like a curious bystander yeah. on the, no, this whole thing. It definitely made me think more about intelligence and minds and brains than any other book that I'd read. Oh, yeah. And it broke it down into the building blocks much yeah. better for me, at least for a layperson, for me. And the way it ties together these other areas, you might not get when he's talking about it from the math perspective, but when he brings in music yep. or art, yep. then it suddenly it makes it. sense. Yep. Yeah. And it was also just like for me, like we always hear in popular culture, like about AI these days. Mm. And like, you know, I've read Super Intelligence. I thought it was really interesting, but Bostrom doesn't go into the building blocks of AI. I don't know much about his background. So I'm not even sure if uh, that's something he studied. His is much more about like the societal impacts of it as opposed to like this is how it will emerge and how it'll behave and what a mind in a computer might be like yeah, yeah. but i feel like you kind of need almost both sides of it so Definitely. yeah this is a this is a really interesting one as, as you know if ai is something that you've ever been curious about or your own brain is something you've ever been curious about. <laughs> yeah, definitely check this one out. Yeah, so definitely enjoy and tune in next week when we should have a discussion of how to think like Elon Musk. Yeah, that one's going to be a fun one. Too. That'll be a fun one. He has some opinions on. He definitely has some opinions. Yeah, we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to be sure to tie that in. Yeah. Um, very much uh, on the doomsday crowd. Yeah, I think the show notes for this episode should be pretty interesting, too. There'll be some Escher links. and Where can they go to get those show notes? They can go to madeyouthinkpodcast.com. And I suppose they should also maybe go to iTunes. Probably leave, leave, a, review. leave a review. Yeah. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. That's another good thing you can do. You can also go on Twitter. You could send messages to at the real Neil S. And <laughs> good. <laughs> I think that's you got that handle. right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and I'm at Nat Eliason. And uh, you can go to Amazon and buy the book, but you should go to Amazon from, <laughs> from Make Think, Think Podcast. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> support, support your podcast host. Support the podcast. That's, I mean, there's no ads, right? It's true. No the way you're, the only way you're uh, we're yeah. monetizing it. It's a very casual threat. You better go buy some books <laughs> through the show notes or we're going to put ads on this thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're not holding you guys hostage. No, no. We would never do that. But yeah, absolutely. You guys, you guys like underwear, right? We get me undies on here. That that one's for free guys. (laughs) Sales are about to like go through the roof. Yeah, from Made You Think podcast. Yeah, Um, we get like a hmm emoji on underwear, like custom line of me undies. Oh, that would be sweet. Yeah. Although that might not be the most viral thing. It could be. <laughs> it could be, but... <laughs> I, I'd buy one. I just I'd want buy a pair. One. Yeah, yeah, I'd buy one. We could be recording in them I'd right now. One. Nobody would know. I'd buy more than one. Yeah. Oh, yeah you got to buy seven. Yeah. Like one for every day. <laughs> All right. On that note... Yeah, this is um, deviated thoroughly. Uh, well, uh, Majorthinkpodcast.com. Leave a review. Subscribe. Hope you enjoyed. Check in next week. We love all of you. See you guys. See you guys. Have a good one. <laughs>